Hello everyone, it's Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, coming at you from the Market Scale Home Studio for a quick interview. Today I'm joined on the line by Katherine Fisk. She's professor of law at Berkeley Law and is an experienced advocate for workers' rights, focusing on labor law reform. And we're going to be briefly chatting about how the COVID-19 epidemic is shaping up for essential workers and what the labor dynamics are during the pandemic and postulating a little bit on what they might look like afterwards. So, Professor Fisk, welcome. How are you holding up during all of this? I'm fine. Thank you. All right, let's uh, get into the main questions here. Which companies are you seeing, could be big, could be small, um, that you've seen roll out appropriate protections for their workforce? And that can include things like PPE, hazard pay, sick pay, any and all. The range of protections that employers offer varies widely. And I've seen relatively few in person because I haven't left my house Mm -hmm. in a month. Right, which is good. Which is good. (laughs) That said, I have heard from my husband who goes shopping at the grocery store during senior citizens hour that some grocery stores have installed plexiglass barriers between the customer and the checkout clerk so that whether or not the customer is wearing a mask that would block the customer spreading an infection, the clerk is protected from infection by customers. And I'm told further that they also provide masks and gloves. In contrast, I have seen when I've been walking in the neighborhood, some delivery people delivering what appears to be takeout food, having neither protective gloves nor masks, which raises the risk that they may come encounter, come in contact with a consumer or a passerby and be infected. And could you give us some context on what the legal structure is that's in place um, to push or force employers to provide these kinds of protections um, if there are um, incentives or legal structures to uh, push those protections onto workers, how strong are they as well? Every employer has an obligation to provide a reasonably safe workplace under the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act. And in states that have their own Occupational Safety and Health Acts, the obligations are similar. There's lots of specific details in OSHA, but the basic idea is that the workplace has to be reasonably safe. In a time of pandemic, where we have such a highly contagious and such a dangerous disease spreading widely in the population, it would seem logical to assume that the obligation to provide a self Work, a safe workplace extends to an obligation to provide personal protective equipment. But lots of employers, whether knowingly or unknowingly, don't understand what their obligations are or don't understand the degree of risk that their workers may face. Or employers may think that because their delivery staff are independent contractors working through an app like Uber Eats or Postmates that they don't have any obligations 
or the apps that run these platforms may not think of the workers who provide services as people within the scope of their obligation to provide a safe workplace. So given the uncertainty, given the willingness that many employees or workers feel about whether they're going to get fired if they complain about unsafe working conditions, I think what's less significant than what the law requires at the moment is what workers are willing to demand and companies are willing to provide wholly apart from the question of whether they, are, they fear a lawsuit or an enforcement action by OSHA. Right. Yeah, it is falling a lot on the short term, um, I guess, reactive positions to push for uh, those workplace changes, because I think what we're seeing is um, both a lack of uh, of just general institutional knowledge on how should workers and workplaces and uh, employers react during a pandemic. You know, what does the economy do? How do you readjust? It's clearly something that's very new for at least the entire country, if not the whole world. We haven't dealt with something like this in you know almost a, a hundred years, if not more than a hundred years now, uh, with the Spanish flu. So um, you know, it's it's interesting that the uh, the legal protections are not as robust um, as they might be, I guess, or as we might want them to be to provide those kind of legal protections. Um, do you think there is any other reason why we're seeing some employers, I guess, take advantage of an atomized workplace and decide whether or not to give some of their workers uh, the protections they need or say, oh, well, these workers aren't actually under our jurisdiction, we don't have to do anything to provide them insurance or hazard pay, et cetera. Um, you know, could you break down that dynamic a little more for us? Companies have had strong incentives and I suspect have been advised by consultants or their lawyers for decades that they should strive to increase the profitability of the firm by reducing labor costs. Labor costs in the early middle part of the 20th century were considered fixed costs for a business, and they would try to increase profitability by adjusting costs that weren't fixed costs. Once companies thought of labor as a variable cost and as costs that should be cut in the name of share price, incentives for executives to improve the share price, they figured out ways to get the work done without the company having as big a payroll, without the company feeling that it had any legal obligations to its delivery drivers, for example, or to... They, wanted, they sought to minimize the number of employees that they had on the payroll. What the pandemic has done is make the country as a whole aware of the dangers of having treated labor as a cost that needed to be cut. 
For example, take the huge number of unemployment claims that have been filed lately. Many have been filed by workers who were designated by their employers as independent contractors. Why did employers designate them as independent contractors? In part, so the employer wouldn't have to pay the payroll taxes that fund the unemployment system. The CARES Act, the $2 trillion stimulus bill that Congress enacted in late March, provides eligibility for workers for unemployment insurance, even if they are independent contractors. But there's no money in the system that has been paid into state unemployment insurance funds to provide unemployment insurance benefits for independent contractors. And so in good times, companies thought it was a smart financial move to shift the cost of risk to their workforce, shift the cost of sickness to employees who had no sick leave plans, shift the cost of health crises to somebody else so that the employer didn't have to provide a health insurance plan, shift the cost of unemployment to the worker so that the employer didn't have to contribute to the unemployment insurance fund that each state maintains. Now what we're seeing is the massive risk shift to workers has consequences for taxpayers who are going to have to fund these benefits for the economy as a whole, where we now have an, a record number of unemployed people who are destitute, huge lines at food banks. And so what this pandemic has revealed is that companies probably should have been planning in times when profits were good and unemployment was low to figure out how to do their work and take care of their workforce, whether the workforce are employees or independent contractors, so that in hard times, the economy didn't collapse when suddenly millions and millions and millions of people are unemployed without adequate savings, without unemployment insurance, without health insurance, and without adequate safety protections. Last main point here, uh, one of the most distressing dynamics that we've seen because of this pandemic is that many of the sectors that we deem essential, so grocery workers, fast food workers, sanitation, some sects of retail, they don't get paid at the rate that values that essentiality, especially not during the pandemic. Um, but I think it's changing a lot of public perception as well as, uh, well, why are these workers that we have deemed essential, the ones that are being paid uh, the least out of our peers, right? So uh, often that pay is barely above or it's at minimum wage. What are the cultural and economic ramifications of that divide, that socioeconomic and class divide? And what are the short-term solutions and the long-term projects needed to get workers that are now deemed essential um, at a point where they are better valued for that essential labor? 
think of the food chain as an example. The workers who plant, tend, and harvest crops are disproportionately undocumented. It's an irony that the population of the workforce who provide the food that we eat, whether they're crops or meat, are people who cannot legally work in the United States and who cannot legally be hired in the United States. Everybody in food production knows it, but everybody ignored the immigration problem because it was in everyone's financial interest to simply ignore it because food is so essential. Now that they are essential, we recognize, it's time to think about the question of granting legal protection to workers in the fields and in the slaughterhouses to enable them to effectively be protected under federal, state, and local wage laws, to enable them to unionize and bargain collectively so that they have a meaningful mechanism to enforce rights about safety and pay, and to protect the rest of us from the dangers that we encounter if they become too ill to work, but go to work anyway and spread disease. One could say the same thing about the people who drive the trucks, who deliver products from warehouses to markets, people who work in the warehouses. We all now recognize that in a consumer-driven economy, the distribution of products are essential to us all and that we have a collective interest in ensuring that they are safe, that they have enough money so that when there are shocks to the system, we don't face starvation, malnutrition, homelessness. And I think one could say the same thing about grocery clerks, restaurant workers, the whole range of people who do work. Now, of course, some of the essential workers in public safety and in healthcare do have pretty good protections. In part, that's because they've successfully been able to form organizations that bargain collectively. Think about firefighters. Think about nurses. Some who aren't unionized have job skills or a monopoly in the labor market. Think about the relatively small number of doctors, which is a relatively small number because the American Medical Association has limited the number of medical schools that will exist in the country. So for high-skill employees, they're able to protect themselves in difficult times, and we recognize that they are essential without meaning to minimize the risks and the fatalities among doctors who are treating patients on the front line of the coronavirus pandemic. 
but at least doctors, for the most part, are reasonably well compensated because they have the skills that gives them labor market power. What we have to do is figure out how to enable the workers who are less highly skilled to negotiate to protect themselves. And in the history of human affairs, there has been no way other than collective action by workers that has effectively provided those protections. All right, Catherine Fisk, professor of law at Berkeley Law, thank you so much for your time on the podcast, giving us these quick, important thoughts. Looking forward to touching base as uh, the pandemic continues to shift and new dynamics pop up. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for speaking with me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, other conversations, or consume some more of our content, make sure you head to marketscale.com industries. There you can find plenty of podcasts, articles, and video content from a variety of different industries. And make sure you're also subscribing on Apple Podcasts and on uh, Spotify as well so you can get the latest episodes of MarketScale's podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Until next time.